Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The variety that we find on earth is shocking. If you've traveled to another country, you have experienced what many label culture shock. When you look up and see a billboard in a different language and it dawns upon you, there are people here living their lives quite like us, but in a completely different context, using a different language, thinking somewhat different thoughts, a different culture. And that's anywhere you go in the world. There's some diversity from place to place. This is true even of the flora and the fauna, because when you drive home from church today, you're not worried about hitting a kangaroo. But in Australia, 90% of animal collisions are with kangaroos. When you leave here, you're probably not going to see a cluster of bananas on a tree. But if you lived in Central America, maybe you would. God has created his world both culturally, even just physically, to have diversity. So it's not the same everywhere that you go. Today, we're a lot more aware of this than our predecessors were because of things like internet and globalization. We're aware that there is a great diversity and difference in the different places you go on the earth. The ability we have to travel is different than it was in the past as well. Because of this, we really have to wrestle with certain questions that maybe were non-questions to some of those who came before us. For example, it was common practice in the past that when a missionary would go to a, a foreign field and encounter a culture vastly different from his or her own, when you would lead these people to Christ, then you would say, well, now that you've come to Christ, I know what clothes you need to wear. They just happen to be the exact clothes worn in the country I came from. So wear this suit and tie. And in the past then, cultural elements from the home country were just imported and kind of, at times, forced upon the people you brought them to because they hadn't worked through the question of what elements of this very different society are sinful and need to be replaced and which are just, by God's design, different. Neutral cultural differences. You and I don't really have as much the privilege of not thinking about those things because the world's gotten much smaller and we have to think through what elements of culture, even in the United States, but especially overseas, what elements of culture are neutral and to be celebrated and enjoyed and which ones are sinful and need to be changed, both in our own culture and in the cultures of others. So we better appreciate in some ways that God has made a very diverse world. That's a good thing. <clears throat> But with that awareness comes also one immense challenge to our faith. And it is, if there are elements of our culture, how we dress and how we talk, even as Christians, which are more based on our culture than on timeless Christianity, could that be true of the gospel we proclaim? Who's to say that our gospel isn't just an element of our particular culture? This, of course, is the atmosphere we live in now broad, more broadly in the United States. Who are you to go and tell someone who is Muslim because they live in a Muslim country that they should become Christian? Aren't you simply saying that because you live in a Christian country? 
Isn't that just another element of your culture? Isn't it simply because you're that demographic called American evangelical? That's why you believe the evangel, the gospel that you believe. But who are you to put that upon other people? It's simply a part of your culture. And if you try to force it anywhere else, it's just Western imperialism trying to dominate over others. Is our gospel a local product of American evangelicalism? Or do we have a gospel that transcends our moment and therefore applies to the entire world, no matter where you go? That is the question that we're dealing with in our text today. And the answer that we give is, our gospel is the gospel. This hairstyle is not the hairstyle. These clothes are not the clothes. In a hundred years, they will all be different. But our gospel is the gospel. There is not another one. There is no other name under heaven given by which any person anywhere on any continent may be saved. There's just one gospel. And I suppose we should be aware of this because what are we doing this morning except opening an ancient text from 2,000 years ago when neither American nor evangelical meant anything. From 2,000 years ago, it's written by a Middle Eastern man, an ancient Jew, in a Roman context, okay? So the gospel that he proclaimed is the gospel that we receive and that we proclaim. It is not unique just to our time. We're going to see that, that this gospel is not a gospel among other gospels that others have, but the gospel, as Paul gets into this text, the body of his letter here in Galatians 1. Let's look beginning in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If you remember from the last few weeks that Paul's writing this letter to Galatia, it's a region in modern-day Turkey. Paul had gone to Galatia, planted churches there, preached to them the gospel he received from heaven. They had trusted in Jesus Christ and were saved. And then, as our text says so quickly, very shortly after that, in come these people we call the Judaizers, these false teachers with a different gospel isn't really a gospel, but it claims to be a gospel. It came in, they brought this other gospel, said Paul was only half right, here's the full gospel that you've been missing, and the Galatians were in the process, although clearly in the text they haven't fully gone in there yet, he holds hope for them, but they were in the process of turning to this new gospel that had been brought to them. And Paul's response in essence in this text is, you think that I gave you a gospel, but now you found another one. There is no other gospel than the one I gave you. So if you go anywhere else, 
you don't have a gospel. It's the point Paul has to make because of these Judaizers, and it's a fair point to be made today to us because we may not have so many Judaizers running around claiming that you need circumcision and to keep Mosaic law, as we will see, but this is always the temptation wherever we are for someone to come in with something novel or something new, maybe in your own Christian life, excited about the gospel, receive it with joy, and as time goes on and you encounter difficulties, persecution, suffering, etc., and just the humdrum of life, you begin to wonder, am I missing something essential here? And that opens the door for someone to come in, the greasy salesman, and say, I've got what you're missing. It's another gospel, something that you haven't heard, something that you didn't see in the Bible that's not there, and then something gets added to it. So this is a message that we need as well. Paul's point is there's no other gospel. Look, you know the gospel from Scripture. It's clear. It's plain. There it is. You've got what you need. You don't need more. If you try to get more, you'll get less. So what we're going to look at in this text then are these two things. The other so-called gospel that Paul is furious about that the Judaizers had brought. And then we're going to see just how seriously, you could hear it in the text, I don't have to convince you, but just how seriously Paul took the fact that they were looking toward this other gospel. So let's just begin with the other, I'll say so-called, you can put quotation marks around it, but this other gospel, which he calls in verse 6, a different gospel. So if you look in verses 6 and 7, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, that's God called them, and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the only, the one and only gospel of Christ. Now, I've mentioned the Judaizers several times, and you can see them in our passage where he'll speak of quote, some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. But you'll notice as we study Galatians that the term Judaizers never appears. These enemies are never named in our text. Their activity is described every chapter, just about, but their names are not given to us. So we've decided on the name Judaizer. It describes what they were doing, adding Jewish works to the gospel. But just to make very clear this false gospel that the Judaizers were bringing, what was the Judaizers' so-called different gospel that they were convincing the Galatians of? We actually have one of the clearest pictures of it, not in Galatians, but in the book of Acts, in chapter 15. Because at the very beginning of that chapter, we read of these people like this, quote, but some men came down to where Paul was, from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, if you notice at the beginning of Acts 15, they were teaching this to the brothers. These were people who claimed to be not just Jewish, though they probably were Jewish, but they claimed to be Jewish Christians. So they would come to the Galatians and say, we're on the same team. We're Christians. We're from Jerusalem. We're from Judea, where the leaders of the church are. And we have come to you. But this was their message. Their message was not even, we're circumcised and we think it's a good thing and a great picture of God's work, etc. No. Their message was not even, 
when we look at the Old Testament laws, there's some things very reasonable there. We like them. We want to present them to you. Wasn't that? What was their message according to Acts 15? If you're not circumcised, you cannot be saved. That is the essence of the Judaizing gospel. We believe that we are saved, and Paul will argue it this whole letter, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Judaizers said, that's great, but take out the alone, because unless you're circumcised, unless you keep at least some part of the Old Testament law and its covenant, which was entered into by circumcision, unless you do that, you cannot be saved. In other words, they were adding something as a necessary prerequisite to being saved. They weren't saying, great, you're saved. We think you should do this, this, and this. They weren't saying, this is how we recommend you live your life. That's not it. They weren't saying, if you're saved, then you'll see these fruits in your life. They weren't saying that. They were saying, if you want to get saved, you have to be circumcised. If you don't get circumcised, you can't be saved. You will spend an eternity in hell because you did not do this particular action, in their case, circumcision, and at least some portion of the law of Moses, though, as we'll see, not all of it, because they didn't keep it themselves. So, when these Judaizers appeared at the beginning of Acts 15, a big council took place in Jerusalem to decide the issue, because again, they're from within the church, claiming this is what Jesus taught. And the leaders of the church gathered. Paul went down there. We'll see that when we get into the second chapter of Galatians. Paul went down there. There is a large council, and the council of the church quoting Old Testament scriptures, decides, no, the Judaizers are wrong. It is not necessary for non-Jewish believers who've come to Christ to now basically become Jewish, get circumcised, keep the dietary restrictions, etc., because Christ has come and brought a new covenant. And so that council wrote this letter to the Gentiles, quote, we have heard that some persons, the Judaizers of our text, have gone out from us and troubled you, it's in our text too, with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. <laughs> the Judaizers had come to these Galatian churches, very young churches, and had said, basically, guys, if you want to get to heaven, you're going to have to become Jews. You're going to have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And of course, as you might imagine, here are these Galatians who had just come to Christ. They'd heard the preaching of Paul and his companions come in. They had turned gloriously. Chapter 14 of Acts talks about this. They gloriously turned to Jesus Christ, been saved. Their whole lives have been transformed. Their whole future looks different. They have the hope of eternal life, the resurrection. They're living in good works toward each other. Everything has changed for them. And then in come these teachers and say, oh, you got it wrong. You guys think you're already saved, but if you're not circumcised, you can't be. And Paul didn't mention these rules. You're Gentiles, we get it. You're not educated in these things. We'll educate you. Paul didn't mention these rules that you now have to, have to keep if you really want the resurrection, eternal life, so forth. And so the way our text puts it is that they were troubled. They were troubled. It's clear in our text that Paul and his companions were the ones who'd brought the gospel. You see it in verse 8, that he had preached the gospel to them, the gospel we preached to you. And then verse 9 talks about they had received it. They'd received it from Paul and his companions. 
But then so quickly came the Judaizers and tried to change their mind. Now this is hard for a new church. Here you are today, and you've got tomes and tomes, volumes and volumes of theological works, 2,000 years of church history. You can go and read. You've got seminaries. You've got great websites. You've got all kinds of places you can go. Teachers around you to help you get straight your theology, your understanding of Scripture. People have thought and thought and thought all about it. But this is a new church. They don't have a completed New Testament for them just yet. I mean, this is going to be part of it. And in come these false teachers. Now, they should have known that the false teachers were false. Partly because in our text, he says... Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, which I take to mean that Paul and his friends warned them, listen, Satan's going to send in people to try to turn you away from the gospel we brought to you, so be ready, because that's what Paul told people all the time. So they should have been ready, but they weren't quite, and so when these false teachers come in, the least we can say is the Galatians were troubled, thinking, oh my, are we missing it? And they're going beyond that, right on the brink of apostatizing, of turning to a false gospel. And that's why there's such alarm in the way that Paul is writing here. Paul says there may be a different gospel, but it's not another gospel. See that in verses 6 and 7, the transition there? You're turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. And the point he's making is that if your gospel is different at its core, not the language you speak it in, because that's so different, you know, not the nuance maybe, but in the DNA of your gospel, if that shifts from faith alone to any addition of necessary prerequisite works, any kind, circumcision or otherwise, anything, you add that in, it is now not another gospel you can believe if you want. No, it is different. It claims to be a gospel, but you've changed the DNA. It is completely different. It's not a gospel. You can't really call it a gospel. It's not what it is. People, the Judaizers, of course, will call it that. But Paul is adamant it is an anti-gospel. Certainly, we should talk about the things that flow after faith. When you believe in Jesus Christ, your life will look different. And we should and can talk about ways in which your life will look different. But when we do that... We're putting that on the other end of the equal sign. Faith alone equals salvation plus a new heart that produces works. But the error of the Judaizers was they took the works that should follow faith and they put it right next to faith and said, you've got to have faith plus these works that we list for you. That will equal salvation. Say, I didn't come here for math. (laughs) Well, there you go. You've got it. That is the most important equation you will ever see in your life. And that, if you don't get that equation right, you lose the gospel. That's what the Judaizers did. They switched that equation around. said, unless you do this first, you cannot come to Christ. You say, this might sound a little technical. It's not. Let me show you how practical it is. Someone is caught in their sin. They are broken, they are devastated, almost suicidal perhaps, with the guilt, realizing all they've done, all the evil they've done, all the evil they've been, all the evil that they are. There seems to be no hope for them, and everyone around them is agreeing, there's no hope for you. They are in an utterly broken place, 
The question is, can that person at that moment come to Christ? Is Christ in that moment extending arms saying, come to me? Or is Christ 10 miles down the road giving him a phone call saying, if you can make it down here, then you can come to me. And he says, I can't make it down there. I'm broken. I'm dead in my sins. I can't get 10 miles down the road. Well, you're going to have to figure it out. That's what the Judaizers said. You span the gap of these works that you have to do. And if you do good enough, you get to Jesus. Well, then we're all lost in hell forever. The gospel is, you're a sinner. That's the part you played. You sinned, right? Great job. That's what you did. So you ruined yourself with your corrupt heart. Christ did everything else in the gospel story. Everything. You didn't do any of it. He did it. He died on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God for our sin. He bore the penalty. He gives the new heart. He does it all. But the Judaizers said, well, we've got to have some part that we play beyond just believing. That's too easy. So how about believing and become a good Jew? Paul says, if you think that's the case, you've lost the gospel. This happens in our day, if you want it to be very practical, because you say, where are the Judaizers? But you have the Campbellites stand up and object and say, well, you can't really be a Christian unless you're baptized. It's a part of your faith that you have to be baptized. People say that. People in our city believe that. You can't go to heaven unless you're baptized. Now, at Faith Bible Church, we believe baptism is very important. You need to be baptized as a believer. Christ commanded it. If you don't do that, can you go to heaven? Absolutely, yes, you can. The thief on the cross did. Absolutely, yes, you can. You say, well, don't tell people that or they won't be baptized. I will tell people that. The Judaizers tried to force their way with people by the threatening of, if you don't do this, you're lost. Listen, baptism is not that way. Baptism is something you should do, and there are some who will say, if you don't do it, you can't be saved. Nonsense. Nonsense. Anti-gospel. The gospel is faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said, I'm glad I don't even remember who I baptized. I'm here to preach the gospel. Would he say that if you needed to be baptized to be saved? No. Baptism is important. It doesn't save you. You cannot add it into the works you do in order to be justified, even if you call it, as the Campbellites do, an instrument of salvation. No, the only instrument of our salvation is faith. It is through faith that we are saved. Same thing happens in some of the stricter forms of Protestantism where people, you know, it starts maybe over here and then things shift over and people start to think and even to teach at some point I don't know that these people claiming to be Christians really can be Christians because the women wear pants. Or I don't know that they really can. They've got tattoos. I don't know if those people really can be saved if they wear makeup. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. No. Praise God for all of the saints, all of the tattooed saints who have been justified not on the basis of non or ink-free arms, but have been justified on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, young people, you don't go home and tell your parents, Bryce said we should get tattoos. I'm not saying that. Did I say that? I didn't say that. There is a great questions of wisdom about that. Talk to your parents, talk to people. Okay, great. 
But what I am saying is if anyone comes to you and says, if you have a tattoo or if you get a tattoo, then you cannot be a Christian. Lies. Absolute lies. There has to be a difference in our mind between, even as Christians, when we say, I think this is the lifestyle that if you're a Christian, you maybe should live, and here are my reasons for that. Here's the way that I think maybe you should have your children educated, public school, private school, Christian school, homeschooled. Here's what I think wisdom suggests in our context. There's a difference between that and saying, if your kids aren't homeschooled, you are not a Christian. You hear the difference? But that's what the Judaizers were doing. And it's always a temptation when you hold something passionately, even if it's a good thing, but you hold it passionately and it moves from this is what I think is consistent with being a Christian and this, if you don't do it, you can't be. This is what those bad worldlings out there do, you can't be. If you bring the drums in the church, you can't be a true church. This gets back to some of the difficulty of wrestling through what is cultural and what is moral, and even when you've done that, even in dealing with moral matters, you have to be able to distinguish there can be genuine Christians who are still working through these things, just like you were 20 years ago when you didn't know up from down and you just came to Christ and were so excited, but you had all kinds of things in your life you hadn't figured out yet. Same thing. You were a genuine believer, but the Judaizers would say, no, you're not. Not till you walk the 10 miles. Not till you get your act together. Not till you get the tattoo off your arm. Not till you follow these rules. Then you can come to Christ. So, the Judaizer's gospel, with that little addition of some works before the equal sign, is no gospel. And consequently, this does mean that a Mormon gospel is not a gospel. That a Muslim gospel or method or way of salvation is not a gospel. That a Hindu method of salvation or moksha or liberation, it is not a gospel. There is only one gospel. It is taught through the apostles. It is contained in the scriptures and there's not another one. That's Paul's entire point. Add anything to the faith that the gospel requires for salvation and you do not have the gospel. The prosperity gospel is an oxymoron. We call it the prosperity gospel. It's not a gospel. It's not often even prosperity except for the teachers. Now, Paul's response to the Galatians being drawn to this false other gospel tells us more about that other gospel, actually. Look at his response, verse 6. I am astonished. He's astonished. Why would you leave a gospel by faith alone, eternity promised to you through faith in Jesus Christ, so great a Savior? Why would you leave that for the Judaizers saying, here's your rules, good luck? <laughs> and why would you do it so quickly? That's part of what astonishes Paul in the text. So quickly, they had just believed the gospel, just been absolutely changed. You would think maybe after 10 or 15 years of these Judaizers laboring in the field, trying to convince them that perhaps through mere fatigue of mind, they might get them to move toward their false Judaizing gospel. But no, the Judaizers come in and say, hey, and they say, we're convinced. <laughs> Paul says, so quickly. Why are you turning so fast? Now, it might have been that part of the reason they had departed so quickly is because the Judaizers' gospel the allure of it was it did remove some of the stigma of becoming a Christian or some of the persecution that went with being a Christian in the early world. We're going to see this in Galatians later, like in chapter 5, where Paul will say, 
But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, in other words, if I was a Judaizer, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul says, they're stoning me and beating me with sticks, but they wouldn't do it if I agreed with the Judaizers. And part of the reason for that seemed to have been the Judaizers said, we love Jesus, but the Jewish works, they're essential. If you're not Jewish, you got to become Jewish. So when the other Jews who didn't believe in Jesus saw these people saying, we are followers of Jesus, but look at all the Jews we're making, then those other Jews would say, oh, that's commendable. That's great. Yeah, you be circumcised, keep the dietary laws. It's basically like us plus Jesus. We love it. Not a problem. The problem was when Paul came in and he said, no circumcision. And he said, all of the Old Testament laws, all of your good keeping of those laws and the customs built up around them profit you nothing whatsoever before God. That's when the Jewish people started to pull out their stones because it nullified their entire way of life. All their labors said, you have to be justified also by faith. It made it seem like all the hard work they were doing to walk the 10 miles toward God in their own strength meant nothing. And that's exactly what Paul taught. But that's very offensive. So it could have been the Galatians so quickly turned from Paul's true gospel because they're being beaten for the true gospel. And the Judaizers say, listen, you can believe in Jesus and you don't have to suffer like that. If you just tweak it a little bit, then everybody's going to like you. So quickly turning away. Quickly drawn after us. So there may have been that natural draw, as there is in our day too. You can be a Christian. Nobody at your workplace cares if you're a Christian, so long as you're not one of those preachy Christians who actually believes the stuff you say you believe. So long as you don't judge anybody about any moral lifestyle whatsoever, you can do that. But if you try to take Jesus' teaching seriously, you can't do that. If you think that faith in Christ alone for salvation and all others don't have salvation, you can't do that. So there is always a draw to quickly turn away. Paul says, though, what their defection really was in verse 6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the gospel. He doesn't say it that way. Deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul equates you turning from the gospel to you turning from God. If you turn from one, you have turned from the other. It's the exact same to him. You defect from the gospel, you defect from the gospel giver. That's why this is such a serious matter. If you don't want grace, you don't get grace. You don't want the cross, you won't have the cross, but you won't have him who died on the cross either. These go together, the message of the gospel. And it might seem a small thing at first, when you encounter a group of Christians who are kind of on the verge of adding something in as a prerequisite for salvation, it usually does seem a small thing at first. So maybe at first it's just, this is how we think people should educate their children. Don't send me emails. Again, this is a great discussion to have. We're not having it right now. I'm just giving you an example. This is how I think people should educate their children. Great, wonderful. Here are my biblically-based reasons. Excellent, let's discuss it. And then it shifts over, usually after reading particularly explosive articles online, it begins to shift over to, this is how I think if you're going to be a faithful Christian, you've got to do it. 
And then it moves just a little bit and it eventually gets to, if you're a Christian at all, this is how you do it. These things usually start small. The rules come in. There's a new clothing style that the younger generation adopts and the older generation thinks you've lost your mind, just like the older generation thought about you when you were the younger generation. And you think, if you dress like that, the hippies in the 70s with the long hair, how can you be a Christian and have such long hair? Haven't they read 1 Corinthians? And so eventually we close the doors and say, you can't be a Christian if you have what? This. If you haven't done this thing, if you haven't cut your hair, if you haven't, again, Let's talk about the wisdom of it, but are you going to point and say you can't be a Christian unless? It usually starts small. At some point, it gets to where it's necessary for salvation in your mind. This is different, I hope you understand, from when someone is in an open, clear sin and we as the church are called to come to them and confront them for that sin. If somebody is clearly in, say, sexual immorality... We can't say, well, we're not going to confront that or we might be Judaizers. No, we're going to confront that because what we're saying is, if you've come to Christ, this will be the evidence of it. You'll repent of sin. You won't be perfect, but you'll be being perfected. You'll be changing like 1 John said. So that's different from putting over on this side of the equation a standard to say, listen, if you look at pornography more than one time every six months, you cannot be saved. Can I say, if you're a Christian, you will be fighting pornography. You will be putting it off. Absolutely, that's true. Can I give a number, a success rate for you to come to Christ? No, I've lost the gospel. Those things might seem similar. There's a sort of nuance to it. That's what false teachers take hold of and use in order to convince you that they're true. It's a true gospel. This leads to our second point here. We have been talking about what this different gospel of the Judaizers is. Now we need to see just how seriously Paul takes it. He doesn't just consider it a different gospel. He considers it a cursed gospel as we get into verses 8 and 9. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And what Paul does here is provide two imaginary scenarios that are extreme and unlikely, but he's trying to help you see how serious this is. And the first one he says is, imagine if I myself, who came to you probably on his first missionary journey, imagine if I come back through on my second missionary journey, and at that point I say to you, Galatians, so good to see you again. As Paul the apostle who helped plant this church, it's so good to be here. I want you to know that my thought has really evolved over time. I've really been reading and thinking. I've talked with the Judaizers. And I finally come to a point where I realize that the old covenant that God had with his people, including circumcision, the Mosaic law, that, like Jesus said, I haven't come to nullify that, but to fulfill it. And so it still applies to us today. So I really messed this up. Keep believing in Jesus. But I agree now that you can't really be a Christian if you're not circumcised and following the law of Moses. And Paul tells them, 
if I do that, please have lettuce, tomatoes, eggs, garbage, dead cat, something to start chucking at the stage to get me off of there. Chase me out of town. Persecute me more than the... No, don't persecute me physically, but be set against me. Take your index fingers and put them as deeply as you can into your ears and do not listen to what I say. This isn't Paul's gospel, as he's going to say in this chapter. This isn't because I preached it, therefore believe it. This isn't, you could say again, Bryce's gospel, Faith Bible Church's gospel, American evangelicalism's gospel. It's none of that. If any of these entities, institutions, demographics should come to preach something different than what you have right here in the text, forget them. Run away from them. As often, large institutions, even Christian institutions, will often drift away over time from the gospel. Don't go with the institution away from the gospel. It's not about the institution. It's not, a, it's not even about Paul, <laughs> amazingly. He says, even if we, me, my companions who led you to the Lord, should preach to you a gospel different than the one we preached the first time, we're wrong. Don't listen. He says, okay, here's a second imaginary example. Imagine we're having church today and there's a glorious aura from the sky and down descends through the breaking of the clouds an angel from heaven comes here in glorious brilliance. We're putting on our sunglasses as he comes down and the angel blows his trumpet and declares, behold, I bring you a message. Unless you homeschool your children, you cannot be saved or something, okay? Maybe I need a different. Unless you stop wearing pants, unless you wear skirts, unless you whatever. Unless you do that, unless you're baptized, you cannot be saved. And we would just have to go find a new building. We're not going to be around with a heretical false angel here. You say, well, he's an angel. You've got to listen to him. I mean, he came out of heaven. Sure. No. That's what Paul's saying. Even if a miracle like that were to occur, Satan disguises himself and his messengers as an angel of light. Satan is an angel. Don't listen. So, well, how, if we can't trust Paul in them and we can't trust an illiteral, how are we going to know what the true gospel is? It's right here. Oh, not there. It's right here. This is the true gospel. And it's in pen and ink permanently. Has been for 2,000 years. It doesn't change. This is why, for example, if you take something like Mormonism, because many of you understand that in Mormonism, there's a claim by the founder, Joseph Smith, that it was an angel who led him to the golden tablets, which brought about the Book of Mormon. But even if that really happened, it didn't happen, you know. But even if that literally happened and the angel Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith, said, I've got secret tablets of revelation to be added next to the Bible, Joseph Smith should have known from this passage, don't listen to that angel. That's what Paul's saying. Then verse 9, he expands it, okay? Anyone, anyone, and what Paul says to give you a sense of the weight of his feeling is, let him be accursed. Now, I don't imagine any of you said that to someone this week, probably. What does Paul mean when he says, let him be accursed? Accursed, it's the Greek anathema. And it comes from an Old Testament concept 
Cherem is the Hebrew word. It's the idea of the ban. There were times when God brought his people into Canaan to conquer that land. It was filled with idolatrous peoples. There were times when God declared a harem or a ban upon an entire city. And what that meant is the entire city was dedicated to God for destruction. Nothing within it was to be kept. That's why when Achan tried to keep the mantle from Shinar and the 200 silver shekels and the 50 shekel bar of gold, he was himself a troubler of Israel because that city was under the ban. It was all dedicated to God. All of it was to be completely destroyed or brought into a treasury in some cases. Paul is borrowing that sense of dedicated for destruction in the new covenant. We don't have physical weapons. In the new covenant, it's words. It's the gospel that we hold to. Our weapons are not of the flesh, but they are powerful. And so with powerful words, Paul brings in that same concept. He says, if anyone's preaching to you a false, a different, or a false gospel, the Judaizers, I'm not slapping their hand. Bad. Don't do that. Let them be just like the Canaanites in the Old Testament where the entire city was absolutely demolished. May it be that anyone preaching to you a different gospel is judged by God Almighty and cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. That's what Paul means when he says, let them be anathema. And he's saying that even theoretically of himself if he should preach a false gospel. Now, these are strong words. And we're not to think of Paul as some grumpy enforcer of obscure HOA rules. You know, that's not Paul. If you look at this, what did he just say to the Galatians? Grace to you and peace. That's Paul. That's his default. Oh, grace to you and peace. But then we get here, and it's not grace and peace anymore when it comes to these Judaizers. Actually, right here in our text, we're witnessing something that does not happen in a single other of Paul's letters, the 13 in the New Testament, because every single letter Paul wrote, when he gets to the end of his salutation and introduction, he begins with thanksgiving. For example, Romans, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Here's 1 Corinthians, I give thanks to my God always for you. Here's Ephesians, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Here, we're ready for the thanksgiving, and what do we find? I am astonished, anathema, curse them, anathema. Is this the same Paul? This is exactly the same Paul. <coughs> Sorry. It's just that Paul's seriousness in this passage mass matches the severity of the situation he's encountered. A father who is there watching his own daughter be abused, if he thought, it's fine, he's hardly a father. A soldier watching the enemy advance on an innocent village, and he thinks, I'll get to it when I have time, is hardly a soldier. What you have here is Paul treating a different circumstance differently. Excuse me. Too many anathemas. Paul treating the circumstance differently, we ourselves are tempted not to say things this strongly, partly because in our culture we're past the 17th century, which was the century of wars of religion, when you had people fighting over differences of doctrine and putting each other to death, and our reaction ever since then has been, 
matters of doctrine are minimally important. But as you can see, Paul does not at all feel that way. Matters of doctrine are those upon which you live or die forever. So Paul could have someone hurl stones at him to try to kill him, and Paul would forgive them. As Stephen is being killed, Lord, don't hold this against them. As Jesus is being crucified, Father, please forgive them. A Judaizer comes in, says, hey, add this to the gospel. Anathema, cursed forever. Those are the serious matters. My hope on the basis of the passage, excuse me, if I can get through it, even for us as a local church, is that we would be like, as C.S. Lewis has pointed out, any of the knights who sat around the fabled circle table of King Arthur. Because if you were to meet any of these knights in a time of peace, in a court, for example, in the king's court, they are so gentle. So there's Lancelot, strong man, but so gentle, taking down his cape to lay it in the mud so that a sweet dear maiden can walk across it. He's as gentle as a sheep. But you meet Lancelot in a field of battle, and it's not the same Lancelot, and you'll wish you hadn't met him. Now he's like a lion. Now he's like a beast, merciless in his violence. You say, what is this? Are there two knights here? You know, the peaceful one. Are they double-minded? No. There's one knight in two different situations. And that's exactly what we as a local church have to be. There is a peacetime when we are dealing with other believers, even those who may have secondary disagreements with us theologically, in those times we have to be reasonable. We have to say grace to you and peace. Let's discuss these things. Let's work through these things. We don't want to be pushing the nuclear option immediately when we're having these discussions. But meet us on the field of battle. Meet us when a true heretic comes in, someone who really is distorting the gospel, adding to salvation a type of Judaizer, prosperity gospel, or any other sort of error. When they come in claiming to be Christian and try to turn the sheep of this flock away, you don't want to meet us then. Then may every last one of us be armed to the teeth, not literally, but in the sense that Paul means, with our powerful spiritual weapons, either to plug our ears and run away, or if others are threatened, then to confront them to their face. If a heretic comes in here, after reasoning, we drive them out. We will not bear it. We will not tolerate it. Because of the weight Paul puts in this text. Anathema, anathema. Not, hey, let's talk, it's fine. Anathema. May God give us the wisdom and the grace to distinguish between these, to be the gracious, kind knight in the court, and to be fierce and to say the anathemas when that is necessary to. And more than anything, may God grant us as the pillar and buttress of the truth to be found holding fast the gospel truth, unadulterated when he returns.